The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, pal? Thanks, as always, for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. If you'd like to support the Paul Leslie Hour, just go to patreon.com slash Hour. On this very episode, I'm going to be pulling an interview out of the archives that was recorded and broadcast on the radio in 2015. This is an interview with Charles Pignoni, who is the Senior Vice President of Frank Sinatra Enterprises. This interview was also transcribed and featured in La Revista magazine as an article. You can find it if you'd like to read it by going to larevista.ro, R-O. Charles Pignoni is one of the foremost Sinatra archivists. He was on the road with Old Blue Eyes, and he saw the details of many of the moments, both on and off stage. He also happens to have a sterling memory. He has a passion for sharing the story of Frank Sinatra, and he has done so in this interview. But he's also authored two books on Frank Sinatra. The first, The Sinatra Treasures, and then there's Frank Sinatra, The Family Album, and Sinatra 100. I have a copy of that book. It's beautiful. It's interesting. I suggest you check it out. Given that this is the week of Sinatra's birthday, December 12, 1915 was the day of his birth, I present this interview with Charles Pignoni. Enjoy, and as always, let me know what you think. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest is Charles Pignoni. He is the Senior Vice President of Frank Sinatra Enterprises, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Sinatra Treasures, as well as the forthcoming book, Sinatra 100. Charles Pignoni is also the official archivist of the Sinatra family. It's a great pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Paul. I want you to kind of take us back a little bit. What was life like growing up for you? Well, I had an idyllic childhood. I was born in upstate New York, and I was raised on this music, being Italian and having a large family. And my grandfather was actually in the vending business, so he had a lot of jukeboxes. And Frank Sinatra was played all the time in the house and around. And growing up, I was also a Yankee fan. So around 1980, when when Frank recorded New York, New York, and they started playing it at the game subsequently, that just kind of sealed the deal. When I was going into college in 1984, there was an opportunity to take over the Sinatra Society of America. I was going into college for a marketing degree. And at that point, I had established a relationship with Dorothy Ullman, who was Frank's longtime secretary. And she put me in touch with Lee Salters, and Lee was Frank's publicist at the time, and very famous publicist since deceased now, but handled Michael Jackson, Barbara Streisand. I mean, if you Google Lee Salters, he was like the last of the great publicists. He was also a character. And I took over the fan club in the spring of of 84, and what I would do is, when I had time off from college, I would travel and go on the road with the musicians and wherever Frank was, and take pictures with him and publish it. We'd publish a newsletter six times a year. Got to know the people that worked with him around. I had already had a relationship with his pianist who had just come back, Bill Miller. I knew Bill from talking to him on the phone, asking him questions. I knew his previous guitar player, Alviola, but got to know everybody on the road and sort of became a fixture. 
And it just evolved after those four years when I graduated in 1988. Eventually went on the road with Frank the last decade that he worked, and it just evolved into a full-time position to where I am now. I think a lot had to do with it with my age. As I said, at that time, I was around 18. Most 90% of the conversations that I had with Frank Sinatra during that time were about music and I would ask about a specific song or something regarding an album or music or a television special. And I think that him seeing somebody so young interested in his music, I had a rapport with him and that that sort of sealed the deal with the relationship. I don't think now if I was 48 and going around backstage and just saying hello, he probably would have been very kind taking a picture with me and that would have been it. But I think there was some kind of intrigue that somebody young was taking an interest in the music and he has said over the years in many interviews that the legacy was he was hoping that when he stopped that the younger generation would find this music. So I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, meet the right people, and it evolved into what it is. I've been working with the Sinatras, with Frank and the family for two-thirds of my life now, so just that's just the way it's been. You mentioned the jukebox there and, and your grandfather. Was there particular tracks that you especially loved? Well, I have to tell you, in the late 70s and early 80s, I don't think you could go into a jukebox in upstate New York or anywhere in the Tri-City area and, and not have Strangers in the Night, Summer Wind, subsequently New York, New York, but certainly My Way. They were played almost every night in every place that I went into ever with my grandfather. There were other tracks, but those I remember vividly. And like I said, I think when New York, New York came out with on the trilogy album, that sort of was a renaissance and people started rediscovering more of the music. When you look back historically now, it's it's hard to believe, but there was a really fallow time in the 70s after Frank retired and before trilogy that there was really no appreciation for this music. It was Frank, Tony Bennett, Lena Hornell, there were a handful of people, Peggy Lee out there working and doing it. It wasn't really until Trilogy and then a few years later when Linda Ronstadt hooked up with Nelson Riddle and came up with the idea of a younger generation doing the standards. And now since 1984, that has been the template for any artist who is in their late 50s or early 60s from rock or another area of music. They all seem to want to latch on and and do one of those albums. The latest one is Bob Dylan, which I think is tremendous. But in talking to Sammy Kahn and, and people like Jimmy Van Heusen in those years, there was really sort of a reservation about people doing that music. And again, I think it was spurned by Trilogy and then with the success of Linda Ronstadt's album that the standards are now appreciated for what they are because there was a period there where it was mostly based on the singer-songwriters. New York, New York kicked it off. I thought that I think that's the beginning of the renaissance that continues today. Earlier, you were talking about the late publicist Lee Salters. Tell us a little bit about him. Could you call him like a gatekeeper? Was he very skeptical? Uh, Lee, well, you know, Lee, when I, when I got really involved, by the time I got out of college and involved, Lee had moved on. Lee was with Frank, I think, from the mid-70s after, you know, there was an incident in Australia where Frank had an incident with the press and his press agent from the mid-60s up until that time was a man named Jim Mahoney, who's still alive and 
Yeah, I think he lives here, and he might even live down in Rancho Mirage or Palm Springs, where Frank used to live. Jim Mahoney subsequently was let go after the I, the Australian thing, and then Lee took over. Lee had a daughter whose name was Susan Reynolds, and by the time I became really full-time involved, Lee had moved on, and Susan, because Lee had other clients, he would send Susan on a lot of the trips, and Susan would be there most of the time. So by the time I started really full-time in 1988... Lee had moved on, and his daughter, actually Susan Reynolds, was the publicist, and she was Frank's publicist until he passed away. But I knew Lee and kept up a relationship with him and saw him a few months before he passed. He was saw him in Las Vegas. He was at an art show representing Tony Curtis. He still represented a lot of the golden era people, and uh, he at one point even represented, I think, Caesar's Palace as a as as an entity. And Lee was a presence out here, and I could call Lee if I had questions or if I needed information or old press releases. Lee was just an old school character and a wonderful guy. I, I miss him. You talked about the Bob Dylan album that came out this year, this year being, of course, the centenary year of Mr. Sinatra's birth. Who do you think is out there that is kind of doing the best job of keeping the flame burning? Well, I think anybody anybody that does this music it, and it exposes it to people, our younger generation is great. We have a we have a radio channel, seriously Sinatra, that's strictly devoted to the, to the standard music and and not just Frank. I mean, Frank is played the majority of the time, but it's it's one of the only places you can hear Nat Cole, Peggy Lee, Tony Bennett, etc. on the radio. But we do have. Bob Dylan in there. We have Harry Connick. We have Michael Bublé. We have newer people that are singing this music. Look, I don't don't think there's anybody in our lifetime and beyond that's going to come anywhere near the artistry of Frank Sinatra. It was just it, it can't be done today. I mean, you can't. It's not financially feasible for people to do three or four albums a year with a large orchestra with 38 to 68 pieces. Michael Bublé may do one or one album a year. I don't know about Harry Connick anymore. He sort of moved into another genre of music with the New Orleans and strictly jazz. There's nobody that will ever amass a catalog like Frank Sinatra with the quality of musicianship. It's just the, the business has changed the business model for music. A lot of you have two generations of people, younger people that don't they don't think of music as something they should be paying for. So, like I said, I don't think it can ever be replicated from a financial standpoint, but just from the sheer talent of it, from the musicians on the arrangers and Frank Sinatra, you have to realize that in those years, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, even up until the 70s, you had musicians out here on the West Coast and in New York that could actually make a living and work as a professional musician. So they were playing five to seven days a week. It's very hard now, especially when people go out on the road and try to get an orchestra there's multiple rehearsals because some of these people just, they look at this music, they've never played it. So you're just never going to find anybody that can carry the torch and the legacy that Frank Sinatra has. That's why I'm very lucky. We have a wonderful catalog. The problem that I always have with the Frank Sinatra project is not what to put in, but what we have to leave out because it's an embarrassment of riches, this catalog. And it's just a career that'll never be duplicated. One of the incredible things, just as you were talking about, was just the breadth of what Mr. Sinatra recorded and all of these great songwriters of what they call the American Songbook. And we have lost most of them. Most of them have passed away. We recently lost Irvin Drake. I was hoping you could tell us about some of the songwriters 
that you have encountered or learned about as a result of your work? Frank Sinatra, as you mentioned, worked with the greatest songwriters, the people that wrote the great American songbook from the late 20s until the, the early 60s. Johnny Mercer, Irving Berlin, I mean, Con and Van Heusen, and earlier Con and Julie Stein were actually seemed like Frank's personal songwriters. They knew the man, so they could write songs to fit his persona. That's why there is nobody that can sing Come Fly With Me or Only the Lonely or some of those songs that Con and Van Heusen or Con and Stein wrote specifically for Sinatra and give the same definitive version that Frank gave. The other thing you have to realize is that when Frank went to Capitol Records, he started something that a lot of people credit him with the concept album, which is true, and it was fabulous. But the other thing that people forget is he resurrected a lot of songs that were written in the late 20s and early 30s, specifically for Fred Astaire. And if you talk to Tony Bennett or hear him in an interview, a lot of times he says this, these songs are called the Fred Astaire songbook. And that's because a lot of the writers, Kern, Gershwin, Mercer, were writing songs for Fred Astaire for the movies that he was in. But Frank went a step further and 20 or 30 years later after those movies were done with and you have to remember there wasn't television there weren't DVDs they weren't shown again Frank would take a song like One for My Baby if you watch the movie where Fred Astaire sang that it's not a torch song he sings it mid-tempo now when you hear One for My Baby you think always of the way Frank sang it same thing with I've Got You Under My Skin and several other songs. So I don't think Frank gets the credit for resurrecting a lot of the great songs and making them standards. There's a handful of songs that probably are just as good as some of the songs Frank sang that he never touched. That it, It's a shame that if he did, they would probably be more popular now. The other thing you have to realize, too, is that Sammy Kahn and those, those guys, Irving Berlin and Johnny Mercer, their craft was songwriting. Of course, Johnny had a career as a singer, but that was something he did most as a hobby. But Kern, Porter, Gershwin, their job was songwriting. So when you got to the late 50s and early 60s, and you had people that thought, why am I splitting money with songwriters? I can, I can write a song and collect the publishing and the artist share. You then had people such as Bob Dylan, and I'm not putting anybody down, or James Taylor, people that were writing their own material and singing it. So the craft has to be diluted. That's like if you're building a house. Do you, is the guy that's putting in the plumbing the same guy that puts in the electrician? I don't think you want the guy to do two things unless he's really good at it. And if, unless you're doing one thing and you get really good at it, you'll never be great at it. So the songwriting got diluted. And when you got to the late 50s and early 60s, as I said, you only really had Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett. You only had a handful of artists that we're keeping these songs alive. But I think that Frank really should get more credit for resurrecting a lot of these songs. And the catalog and the material that he sang is just so wonderful, and it'll, it will never be replicated. It just happened and happened in that time, and I'm glad it did. Something that a lot of people don't know is that Frank Sinatra had his hand in writing a couple of songs. Not too many, but just a few. We're here in Atlanta, Georgia. On this end, and there's a kind of nice, uh, it's a nice song that uh, Sinatra co-wrote, the Peachtree Street song. Tell us about his writing. I don't know much about his songwriting, and I've only heard Frank. One of the great things about being on the road with Frank was the stories that he would tell after. I don't think Frank ever considered himself a songwriter. I think that on some of those songs, he might have made a lyric change or 
suggested a line and that worked better than what was originally written and then was given credit. But he certainly did not, I don't think, sit down and compose songs. And again, as I said, I think he was of the same mindset that what I just said is that you really have to be good at one thing. I don't, I don't think he ever thought or considered himself a songwriter. Certainly not in my presence did he say that. It was always an offhand comment that, like, I may have changed a line here. I, I might have asked him one time, I think, about Mistletoe and Holly or one of the songs that he's credited with. And you have to remember that a lot of the publishers in the 20s and 30s would take advantage of artists like Duke Ellington. You had a publisher named Irving Mills, and you see that Duke Ellington write a song, and now it says Ellington and Mills. And that was the reason they'd say, well, we'll publish your song, but I want to get songwriter credit. So I, I don't think Frank was into that. And I think it was just maybe a handful of times where he made a suggestion or, or put in a lyric. I never heard Frank talk about, I'm going to sit down and write a song or compose a song. So I don't know much about that. Our special guest is Charles Pignoni, the Senior Vice President of the Frank Sinatra Enterprises. Tell us about some of Frank Sinatra's inspirations, some of his influences. So many singers of today cite him as an influence. Who was he influenced by? Well, he certainly was influenced by Bing Crosby. He certainly told the story where he took Nancy, his first wife, to see Bing Crosby. And after seeing that, said that's what he wanted to do, even though he was singing before that. But I've heard him many times and in many interviews. I mean, there's a, few, a handful of people that he credits, and one of them certainly is Billie Holiday, who I think had a huge influence on him. The other certainly is Louis Armstrong, who I think influenced every pop singer of the 20th century and beyond. And Frank also favored a cabaret singer named Mabel Mercer. And I know later in his career, especially when I was on the road with him, there was a singer that he admired, a cabaret singer named Sylvia Sims. And he would always try to get Sylvia, if he was playing like at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City, he would get Steve Wynn to book Sylvia Sims in the lounge there. And I remember Sylvia being at a lot of the concerts in New York and Frank introducing her. In fact, in the early 80s, he didn't sing, but he conducted an album that was released on reprise called Sims by Sinatra. And so he did favor cabaret singers, but I think that the early and the main influences singing-wise were probably Crosby, Billie Holiday, and Louis Armstrong. And of course, the breath control and phrasing, he always talked about Tommy Dorsey playing the long phrases on the trombone, and he would watch Tommy Dorsey and couldn't understand how he did it. And he would see, eventually see that Tommy would sneak a breath in like a pinhole from the side of his mouth in order to play those long phrases. And I think that's sort of what separated Frank from a lot of the other singers, because Frank would sit and look at the lyrics first and figure out actually how to sing them and not take a break or a breath where it shouldn't be. So you had a continuation of a line or of a phrase or of a theme. But I think it's a bunch of people that he probably was influenced by. Why do you do what you do? <laughs> that, that's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that. I have no idea why do you do what you do. I mean, it's I, I'm a victim of circumstance. I love what I do, but I, I've been doing it so long, and that's, that's hard to answer. <laughs> and I do so many different things, but I've never been asked that question. That's a great question, but I, I don't know. I couldn't answer that. I've read it, quoted Frank Sinatra, that he thought of himself as a saloon singer. What do you think that he meant by that? He would say, and I think it was true that on his passport under occupation, it would say saloon singer. I think he was most comfortable singing in clubs. You have to realize that when Frank came up, he started on the road with the big bands. And I think that was the best training of all 
and many of the singers that sustained through the years, Ella Fitzgerald, Peggy Lee, they had that training of being on the road almost 300 nights a year, traveling by bus, doing six shows if you were doing like at the Paramount. But I think Frank was most comfortable when in the 40s, he started playing clubs like Copacabana, the Rio Bamba, the Shea Puri in Chicago, the 500 Club. And I think it was just a looser atmosphere, even up until the 80s and early 90s. If you went and saw Frank Sinatra, and I could tell you this from being there, you know, if one week we were at Radio, he was at Carnegie Hall or Radio City, and then three or four days later, he opened at the Golden Nugget in Las Vegas or wherever. They were two completely different shows. I mean, he would do things at Carnegie Hall that he that he would drop or not do in Vegas, like Lost in the Stars. And it was more of like a recital or a concert when he was playing these large venues. There were a lot of times in Las Vegas when he would bring out songs that he hadn't sung in years and try them out there. And it was just a looser atmosphere. People were able to drink, sit there and drink. And, you know, he would do two shows a night. That stopped in the early 90s. But when I first started with him, he would play the Golden Nugget. He'd be there Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And you'd see, if you were there the weekend, you could see six shows because he was doing two shows a night. But I think he was most comfortable, and that's what he was brought up in. That was the audience that he gravitated to, especially all those years that he played at the Sands in Las Vegas and the Fountain Blue in Florida. You have to remember, too, looking back on it now in time, in the 50s and 60s, there were not a lot of... Frank Sinatra did not go out and tour. There was maybe a sporadic tour here and there. But unless you went to Miami at the Fountain Blue, where he would play two or three times a year, or the Sands, where he would play four or five times a year, there wasn't really an opportunity to see Frank Sinatra live. And that's why there was such a demand to see him in those places. And the Copa room at the Sands, I mean, I, I think it sat less than 700 people. So if you were in that audience, you were pretty close wherever you were sitting to Frank Sinatra, and it was an intimate experience. And I think that's the key to it. He liked the intimacy. Although I was just in London because we have a show that's opening up there, Sinatra at the London Palladium in July, a multimedia show. And I was being interviewed by a lady, and she was telling me that in 1990, when Frank played this huge arena there called the Docklands, and usually he played Royal Albert Hall or Royal Festival Hall, but this time he played this new arena. And she was saying that, you know, she was 28 or so at the time and saved up all our money. And she, when she got her ticket, it was in the last row at the top of the seat. But when he sang, Guess I'll Hang My Tears Out to Dry, she said she felt he was singing directly to her, even with all the 18,000 people in that arena. That was one of the key that's special about Frank Sinatra, that X factor that people are just drawn to the voice and there's some kind of unity and they feel that he is singing to them, whether it be a room of 700 people or whether it be 18,000 people. There's this book coming out, Sinatra 100. Frank Sinatra was born in 1915. It is now 2015. Tell us about the book. You know, I've done a book called The Sinatra Treasures and the Sinatra Family Photo Album. And when we've been planning for this centennial for the last five to eight years, I mean, we had a big celebration in 2008 because the United States Postal Service honored Frank with the stamp. And at that time, we came out with a CD package called Nothing But The Best. It was very successful. But right after that year, we started planning for the centennial. And the book is just one centerpiece. I mean, I think everything kind of kicked off which I would call a light, a light launch. We had a, a Grammy exhibition that's still at Lincoln Center that opened March 4th at the New York Public Library, which is memorabilia and an exhibition of 
Frank and his life. It's called Sinatra, an American Icon, and that will be there until September 4th at the New York Public Library, and it's free, right next to Lincoln Center. And then that will move out here to the Grammy Museum in Los Angeles, and will open here in October, and then eventually, after four or five months here, it will tour the country and then tour the world. It's a wonderful exhibition, and it's free. We also had an exhibition of the pop art icon Peter Max, who did several Sinatra, we commissioned him to do several Sinatra paintings, and that's traveling around the world and exhibit. As I said, we have the in the UK, we have a new multimedia stage production, Sinatra, at the Palladium that opens July 10th, which is 65 years to the month since Frank actually played at that venue. We were able to open on the 10th, and in 1950, July 10th, 1950, that's when Frank Sinatra first played the London Palladium. And then this book, we have a book called Sinatra 100, and it's a career-spanning photo book that I put together. A lot of the photos have never been seen. And with quotes and interviews by people who knew Frank, very similar to the Sinatra treasures in the format. It doesn't have the treasures in the book, but it has um, interviews with people and people that I've interviewed over the years that have known him. And actually some interviews that we had with Frank that had never been heard before. And that book comes out in late September, early October. I don't know if you're aware, but we put out a Frank Sinatra 100th app. So we have an app that we're, you know, getting us into the 21st century. We also have a special art book that Frank's granddaughter curated, Amanda Erlinger, and that's a limited edition book of a thousand copies that's selling for, I think, $1,200, and that'll be released in the summer, and there'll be a lot of publicity about that. And I'm sure you're aware that we released a couple of weeks back Ultimate Sinatra, which is a career retrospective, which was a single CD and a four-CD set that came out from Universal Music. And I'm very proud of that because we were able to get in that album, reach the Billboard 200, and that Frank, that was his 57th Top 40 album, and that extends his record of the most top 40 albums on the Billboard 200 chart. So we're very proud of that fact that he's still here and still relevant in terms of the music, even though the business is changing. So there's just a lot going on for the centennial. And as I said, I think it'll really pick up steam in the fall and extend into 2016 with a lot of these projects. Well, congratulations on all that stuff. What Thank would, you. What would you say to anyone listening in? Just totally open-ended. A lot of people, especially when I was younger, a lot of people would come up to me and ask me, what is this fixation or appreciation of Frank Sinatra? I, they don't understand it. And I would say to them, well, you have to listen. The music, it's, it's in the music. And I would tell people, I would suggest that you, then they'd look at me quizzically and say, what do you mean? I said, look, go by or listen to Come Fly With Me or the In the Wee Small Hours or September of my years or songs for young lovers. And if you listen to that and you don't understand or get or appreciate Frank Sinatra, there's nothing I can tell you that's going to help you to appreciate it. Frank Sinatra never wrote an autobiography. The music is his autobiography. It's all in there. I think that's why to this day he still appreciate it. And he is still considered the preeminent vocalist of the 20th century and beyond because there's just nobody there's nobody that when they sing, you believe what they're singing most of the time. And he said many times, you know, when he sings, he's honest. So I think it's that honesty in the singing that makes people gravitate 
still to this day to his music and his recordings. I mean, besides the fact you forget, we're, you know, we, we talk a lot about the music. And as I said, the music is a legacy. But the man had a, a wonderful film career. And he did 60 plus movies, won three Academy Awards. And nowadays, anybody with that career, just that movie career of his would be considered a superstar in the genre of films. So you have to realize, again, you look back at time and things have changed so much, but you realize what a colossal force and he was in the entertainment business after his comeback in 53. I mean, he just, he just never looked back. He won that Academy Award from here to eternity, signed with Capitol Records, and then it was just until he retired. And then when he came back in 73 with Old Blue Eyes was back, the focus shifted from recording really to touring. And from 73 until he stopped in 95, he was on a continual tour. He toured the world many times over, and people just wanted to see him. So I consider myself very lucky, as I said, that that last decade I was able to, you know, I've never counted, and it's too late now, but I probably saw him live 500 plus times over that decade. It's something that I'll never forget, and it's something that never can be replicated. I've seen almost everybody in the last 20 years in the music business, in entertainment. And I never get the same feeling that there was always a tension or there was a palpable excitement before Frank would come on stage, whether that was on a nightclub or whether that was the Meadowlands Arena or Madison Square Garden. He just had some kind of connection through the years with the audience that I have not witnessed with a lot of other entertainers. And certainly there are other entertainers out there who are still Tony Bennett comes to mind that still have a great relationship with the audience, but it's nothing like I've seen with Frank. uh, And I'm just glad I was able to witness that. Our special guest has been Charles Pignoni. My last question at heart, who is Charles Pignoni? Wow. You're, you're asking some weird, some questions that I can't answer. I don't know. I'm just a normal guy who appreciates the music. And that's a hard question, Paul. (laughs) I don't, I can't answer that for you. Let me ask you this then. You mentioned you saw Frank Sinatra 500 times. You've had the chance to meet some incredible people, some of them no longer with us, some of them still with us. What is the best thing about being you? Well, the best thing about being me is uh, it's a job. There's no question about it, but it's not. I'm not digging ditches. I mean, I'm listening to music. I'm archiving things. I, I'm happy to be involved. Uh, the, the Sinatra family have been wonderful to me over the years. They trust me. They trust my decisions with the music. I've always collaborated with them. It's been wonderful. But again, you're right. I've met a lot of wonderful people. I was able to meet Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. when Frank tried to put the Rat Pack together. I've met and I consider myself to be good friends with Tony Bennett. I met Steve Wynn, who when Frank worked with him and now we have a restaurant in Las Vegas. I've met some wonderful people because of my association over the years with Frank Sinatra And a lot of it has to do, most of them all have an appreciation of the music and the artistry of Frank Sinatra. I don't think there's a bigger fan of Frank Sinatra's music than Tony Bennett. I could talk to Tony Bennett for days and hours on end about his music, but also about Frank's music. And Tony has always been very generous. He wrote the foreword for the new book, as did Steve Wynn. If I need to call up Tony and need a quote, or if Tony, if we need Tony to do something for our Seriously Sinatra channel, I don't think Tony has ever said no. And Tony credits that because he feels indebted to Frank Sinatra. Because in 1965, Sinatra did an uh, article, an interview with Life magazine, and he said, for his money, Tony Bennett was the best singer in the business. And Tony feels that after Frank said that, that a lot of Frank's audience went to check out Tony Bennett and then eventually became fan Tony. 
there's just so many people that Frank Sinatra has touched throughout his career with his music and with his generosity. And I've got to meet a lot of those people, and it's been wonderful. Mr. Pignoni, thank you very much for sharing with us. My pleasure, Paul. It's been great. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. The boop, bop, deep, bop, doodly, keep, bop, doodly, shop, bop, ding, daka. Goodbye.